that last little bit that our brother read um, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. Boy, there are some days, and today might be one of them. We just wish that um, maybe that would, would come sooner rather than later. But I know the Lord Jesus still has elect ones to gather in, uh, but we look forward to his return. Okay, we're at um, Psalm 22. It's kind of a lengthy psalm. I'm going to read the entire psalm. And the series that we're in is Finding Christ in the Psalms. And then you, if you've been with us, we will look at a section of a psalm, even a, even a phrase, and then we'll go to the commensurate counterpart in the New Testament that says this refers to Christ. In Psalm 22, um, our, our main focus will be verse 1, as you'll see in just a bit. But Psalm 22 is filled with prophecies that the New Testament directly attributes uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and you'll see in particular what aspect of Christ in the work of Christ. So I'm going to read it all. It's profitable, and um, uh, we'll go from there. Hear the holy word of God. For the choir director upon Ijaleth, Hash Shahar, a psalm of David, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer me. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out, and and they were delivered. In you they trusted. They were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for... There is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me. It's as a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth. From the horns of the wild oxen you answer me. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. From you, my praise comes in the great assembly. 
I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. Those afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's. He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, your loving Father, a merciful Father, the Father of us, Lord Jesus Christ, eternally so, how the eternal begetting of the Son occurs, Lord. We know that you, O Christ, are not created, that you are begotten. We don't even begin to understand how that works. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are uncreated, infinite, eternal. You have always been God. There was never a time that you were not. And we are creatures of time and space, and you deal with us accordingly. Help us, Almighty God. Our days seem very, very long to us. Waiting in times of tribulation seems exceedingly long, Lord. And we become very, very impatient. Cause us to see things as you see them, Lord God, and to count days as you count days. And to to cease our fear from man and to follow the example, example of our psalmist, And when we are in distress, which is, uh, for many of your people, um, almost a daily experience, Lord, that we pray that we would pray to you, knowing that you are a God who hears the heart anguish uh, of your children. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I, I may have mentioned this before. I'm not quite sure if I've done this. Um, the Bible is obviously our only rule for faith in practice. And, but the church just didn't begin yesterday with us, uh, that, thankfully. There have been trem- tremendously gifted men throughout the epoch of the New Testament church in particular uh, that have been fabulously gifted by God the Holy Spirit uh, to have some wonderful insight into God's Word. And so... I'm a big fan of um, of, um, of good commentaries, uh, good, good works by men of insight. Uh, obviously, as Puritans, we are the great-grandchildren, spiritually speaking, of the English Puritans and uh, the great-great-grandchildren of, um, of the magisterial reformer, Protestant reformers. And Charles Spurgeon, Baptist, but he was kind of a, a Puritan born out of time. And Charles Spurgeon, if you ever get a chance to buy his commentaries on the book of Psalms, I think they're in a a three-volume set. It is well worth it. He is very, very insightful. When he comes to Psalm 22, Spurgeon calls Psalm 22 the Psalm of the Cross. And if you know your Bible, and you should know your Bible as a Christian, and um, you should know both Testaments. The Old Testament, obviously, is two-thirds of the canon of Scripture, and New Testament, obviously, obviously is one-third. Um, the New Testament is the Old Testament in full bloom. And there's a, one of the reasons I love the Reformed faith 
is they show the continuity between both testaments, which is why we're covenantal in our theology. It's the, the, the advance of the covenant of, um, of grace. Um, but, but it shows where Christ is and the promise of his coming and his works running through redemptive history. And um, when, we, when we look at this particular psalm, and if you do know uh, your Bible, particularly your New Testament, so the words of Jesus Christ on the cross, uh, the strong bulls, if you know Matthew chapter 22 and all of the death accounts, the crucifixion accounts of Jesus from the New Testament, which of course we should be well acquainted with, there will be so many things that leap out where we say, this is, this is the death of, of my Christ. So this Spurgeon was spot on. This is the Psalm of the Cross. And the Apostle Paul will use that word as a metonym, which is a figure of speech, when he says the cross, I suffer to know nothing but the cross, it's a figure of speech for the gospel, for the, for the I don't even want to use the, the phrase, the theory of the atonement. It's not a theory, it's the truth of the atonement. The others are theories, the persuasion theory, the moral persuasion theory, those kind of things. The Grotian government theory, which is even some good men that I liked actually held that sadly, that, that God was offended as a governor, and Jesus died to satisfy the offense of the governor. That's called the Grotian, G-R-O-T-I-N theory, uh, or government theory. So there were theories on the atonement. But the true truth of the atonement is the substitutionary, vicarious, penal, wrath-assuaging, justice-assuaging cross of Christ. That, that's the truth of it. And so when you come here, that's what we see. And it's really, it's, it's the foundation stone and the capstone of the Christian faith. We can never, sometimes folks think, well, we're talking about the cross. We're talking about the crucifixion, which is obviously, I think, what I, the crucifixion of Christ. Sometimes Christians think, well, the cross is kind of like Christianity 101. When do we get to the big stuff? Oh, beloved. Um, it is my view, you know it's my view, if you've been here more than two weeks, you never plumb the depths of the cru- crucifixion. Never. We, we, can never we, can, we can never learn of Christ. We can never exhaust what we learn of Christ on the cross. We can never love him and repay him, even in a gratitude kind of a way, ever, ever. We... we, we I believe that throughout eternity we'll be discovering new things about the cross that we can adore Christ for. So we can never make too much of Christ as Christians. Um, He is the 100 level. There's enough here for the little child in Christ to grasp. And then he is the advanced PhD level for those fathers and mothers in Christ. So... It's a psalm of Christ on the cross, and so there, there are, are, are two things that we find about Christ here. Well, two estates of Christ that we find here, same Christ. In, in verses 1 through 22, if you look at the, the psalm, and I don't know if the, if the editors do this, if they break it out this way, but this is the way that, that the Holy Spirit breaks it out. So the, the psalm splits in two. 1 to 22 is the first aspect of Christ that we're looking at. In Psalm 22, verse 23, to the end is the second estate of the Lord Jesus. And what I mean by that is this. In the first 22 verses, we're looking at Christ's estate of humiliation. Remember when we talk about Christ in his estates, 
of either humiliation or exaltation, which is the second half, we mean Christ as redeemer, mediator. We're not referring to Christ ontologically as he exists in the Godhead forever and ever. We're talking about how he relates to us in redemption, Christ as Savior. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the adorable Godhead have been loving one another forever and ever. And so that is true. But when we talk about Christ in his estate of humiliation, think the high priestly prayer, John chapter 17. Father, I thank you that you glorified me now here as mediator, uh, even even, um, as after the kind that I had with you before I became flesh. So even Christ refers both to his pre-incarnate existence, he always was, and then his subsequent taking to himself human flesh as mediator. And that's what this is. So we're looking at Christ when he became human flesh and he humbled himself. And we know that the humiliation of Jesus Christ, who is the eternal second person of the Godhead, he becomes the son of, he always was the son of God. He becomes the son of man the moment he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. That's when his humiliation begins. And remember, we've talked about this. When we look at Jesus, he, he is a public person. He's our representative. I said this the other day to some young husband and young wife, and I even forget uh, who I was speaking to. I, my Things have been unique in my life lately. But uh, I said to the young woman, I said, way back when, historically, if a woman had a, had a debt, um, the debtor would hand it to the husband and say, this is for you. Because she belongs, not in a mean way or a bad way or a demeaning way, she belongs to the husband. He is hers and she is his and her debts get given to the husband. And so when we think of the humiliation of Jesus in his conception, in his birth, in his low birth, in the abuse that he gets in his life, his cross care, his dying on the cross, all of that, all of that, all of that is as our representative. When we're looking at Christ on the cross, it's for us for the believer. I'm not talking universal redemption. I'm, I'm not an Arminian, any of that. I believe he dies for the elect. Ephesians chapter 5, Acts chapter 20, 20, he dies for the church. We don't know who the elect are. I have no problem telling anybody, 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 if you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, he will never turn you away. He will raise you up on the last day. If you believe in him, you have eternal life. Anybody. And if you say that I'm a bad Calvinist, you're wrong. We don't have the list of the elect. The elect is true. He dies for the elect. True enough. And all who come to him have been granted from all eternity to believe. That's true. But our call is to tell people, come to Christ and he will forgive you for us. And then the moment we believe, we look at this passage and say, he cried, my God, my God, for me. We make it personal. So the first half of this psalm is Christ, and I don't even want to use the word humbling himself because it's too, it's too benign, it's too nice. It's not offensive enough. Sometimes language in the Bible offends and the Holy Spirit gives offensive language. And I don't mean in a, in a particular way. I mean it's shocking to us. Christ being butchered naked is shocking and we have to dress it up because it's too offensive. That's wrong. It's meant to be utterly offensive utterly grotesque. It's meant to make us recoil. 
He did this for us. So humiliation is, is, is more painful to hear than humbling. See what I mean? So the first half is his humiliation. The second half of the psalm from verse 23 to the end is the exaltation of Jesus Christ. When did the exaltation of Jesus Christ as mediator begin? On the third day. He walked right out of that tomb and he rose from the dead just like he said he would. So Christ's exaltation began, his humiliation ended when he walked out of the tomb on the third day. He rose from the dead. He ascended into the heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father and he's going to come again on the last day and judge the world and his kingdom will have no end. That's the, the exaltation. Our purpose tonight is to look at an, one aspect of Christ's humiliation. It's my intention, and of course, who, who knows? Uh, I'm 58 and a half, and it's almost farcical for me to even say to myself, I almost even correct myself, I am going to do thus and so. I used to talk like that in my 20s. And because we got er- married early and we had no money, life cured me of that. But in my 20s, I would say, I am going to do thus and so, and this is going to happen. Well, I'm pushing 60. I don't, I don't even think that way anymore. If I'm here next week, which I hope I will be, Lord willing, and it's God's will that I have enough strength, and you all are here, then my intention is to look at a number of sermons from Psalm 22. Because there are four, five, six, seven prophecies in this one psalm. So I want to camp out in Psalm 22 for maybe three, four, five more sermons. And we may bring in the parallel sister psalm of Psalm 22, which is sword drill psalm what? What's the parallel psalm to Psalm 22? Psalm 69. So we may take from... It's just like when you look at um, David's penitential psalm, when when he confesses and repents after his sin with Uriah and Bathsheba. What do you have, Psalm 51? And what's the parallel psalm of Psalm 51? It's Psalm 32. So so when we look at Psalm 22, there's almost a great deal of repetition in Psalm 69. We may rob from Psalm 69 for a little bit. So we're going to camp out looking at what Spurgeon said is the cross of Jesus Christ. This is the essence of true Christianity. If you take away... The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. No crucifixion. There's no such thing as Christianity. I know it was Mahatma Gandhi that said on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Oh, I love the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, no, you don't. Jesus is not just a holy prophet. He's just not a good swell guy. You take away the cross of Jesus. He's not then just a good teacher. He would be a liar. Because he says he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I know it's John the Baptist, but it's attributed to, to him. So Christ, Christ, if he's not the sin bearer, the wrath assuager on the cross, he's not a good holy teacher. And of course, he's both of those things. So you can't have a real go-to-heaven Christianity without the cross. And I know there are lots of churches that are chock-a-block f- filled with people that have a Christianity without a cross, no crucifixion, and they don't focus in on on that. To tell you the truth, I don't envy those folks. I am terrified, especially for what that minister will hear, will hear at the end of his life. 
to stand up and to present to God's people a crossless Christianity. So, so our focus will be the crucifixion. Now, my focus focus is, as, as, you, as you see, to, no, I didn't write it out. Okay, I, I should have, mea culpa. So Psalm 22, 1 through 31, the real sermon text is Psalm 22, verse 1. And so what we're looking at is the crucifixion of, of Christ, and then this is comes, we're, we're going to break out Psalm 22 into a number of separate sermons. The crucifixion of, Jesus, crucifixion of Christ hyphen, the next section should be this, the cry of dereliction. That's what we're looking at. So Psalm 22, verse 1, the sermon is the crucifixion of Christ, the cry of dereliction. For the next 15 minutes, let's just unpack what we mean by the cry of dereliction. Um, look at verse 1, please. And we're just going to unpack as much divine truth as we're able to from this one verse. Now, Greek words, Hebrew, there are less Hebrew words than English words. There are more Greek words than English words. But all of the languages, including our own language, sometimes a particular word is rightly understood by the context. So I'm using the English word dereliction because that's what's going on properly. But dereliction means various things given a particular context. What I mean when I'm using the cry of dereliction in this context, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Dereliction in this context text means abandonment. This is Christ on the cross crying out to his father, Father, why have you abandoned me, your beloved son? That's what dereliction is. So I know maybe it's a theological phrase that you're not used to hearing. It's very common in the Reformed Church to say the cry of dereliction. This is the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's, um, it's beyond like you just want to start crying looking at it. And so this is a prophecy. Obviously, King David makes it year 1100 BC. It comes to pass a thousand plus years later. Uh, Two of the gospel writers, uh, Mark and Matthew, record uh, when this comes true. I'll read that for us. This will be very familiar to to you. Uh, This is from the gospel of Matthew when this particular prophecy comes to pass. These words actually come from the lips of our Savior. Matthew 27, verse 41 and following. I I, I just want you to think of this. There's so much here. Um, You know, sometimes, I I, I shouldn't say this, but I'll, I'll say it. And I probably beat this horse so much it's probably dead by now. The church doesn't save. I know people are, are sometimes they're keen. Where's the right? The Catholic Church saves. The Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox. The churches do not save. This church doesn't save anybody. Churches do not save. Jesus saves. I'm going to read what the leaders of the Old Testament church did and said regarding Jesus. So let's be Protestants. If someone says the, the modern, pick a church. They say, this is what the leaders of, of the Church of Christ's day said to Christ when he was on a cross. These are the ministers. These are the professors. I'll, I will never believe that a, a, any conglomeration of professing Christians 
can ever steal the rights of the divine head. I, I will never believe it because it's not true. In the same way, the chief priests also, chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they're mocking him. Christ, naked, on a cross. The leaders of the church. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. That's a lie. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him. That's a quote from the Psalms. They're fulfilling the Bible. If he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. They knew what Christ said. The robbers who had been crucified him were insulting him at the same, with the same words, except one will get converted. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and here it is, Eli, Eli, lamet sabachthani. That is to say, he cries in Aramaic, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So what, what, what I want to do is just for the remaining, I don't know, 10 or 12 minutes, I want to just unpack some of the various circumstances and lessons that we have surrounding this cry of dereliction, of Christ crying out on the cross, expressing his abandonment. And the anguish is not even the right word. It's a cry of anguish. I don't, I don't even think, um, yeah, yeah I, I don't have the commensurate um, vocabulary. But it's a, it's, a, it's a cry of anguish. And um, let's look at the circumstances. The very first thing that we learn basically from the cry of dereliction here is that the word of God is true. Part of the, the, the struggle of being a Christian, and you know, you know this is true. I prayed it a little bit because I, I feel it more than a little bit. Um, I, I prayed the words of Mark 9. I think I did. Our Lord, I believe. Fill in the blank. Thank you very much. Yeah. You, you remember who, who said those words? He was a father who had a son who had some kind of epileptic fits and perhaps there was some unclean spirits involved in the business. And they would try to kill the boy, get the boy to kill himself. And the boy would pitch himself in the fire and grind his teeth and so on. And the disciples, the apostles, couldn't heal the boy. And they, the father came in exasperation to Jesus and said, your disciples can't heal my son. And um, essentially, can you heal my son? And so um, Jesus gently corrects him. He says, um, essentially, do you believe I can? And the father says what? Oh, Lord, I do believe but help thou my unbelief. Boy, I feel pity on that guy. And I feel very much a, a, a solidarity with that guy. Believers who believe in Christ, we believe in the Christ of the Bible because we believe the Bible. But beloved, isn't it a struggle to believe the Bible? <laughs> isn't that part of the struggle? God gives us these wonderful promises. Here, Christ dies for us to set us free. It is well with my soul. Our lines have fallen to us in beautiful, wonderful places. Where I am, there you will be also. Never be forsaken, no condemnation. Sin cast from east to west, thrown in the sea of forgetfulness. We're no longer criminals. We're sons and daughters. We'll spend eternity with the saints and the holy angels worshiping the triune God. All clear. Clear as a bell. And then what happens? 
Oh boy, howdy. Life happens. The, 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 we don't even come close to Psalm 22. But we can sympathize with Psalm 22, can we not? Oh God, help me. Oh God, help me. Oh God, please help me. Why don't you help me? This first lesson we learn from the cry of the dereliction is that every promise that God makes, he brings to pass. And I know I believe what I just said. (laughs) I know you believe what I just said. But boy, howdy, we need to get that from here in, in here. And here's the real jam of that. We could believe that right now. God makes a promise to, to, to David that the Christ will come, the Christ will suffer and die, and he, and he gives to David. Because this is the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, even inside of David as a prophet. This is a First Peter chapter 1, 12 through 15. The spirit of Christ gives prophet David the very words of the very Christ at the occasion of his death. My God, my God, promised in a thousand B.C., and it comes true a thousand years later. And we are being taught by this. Believe the word. Why don't you believe the word? Believe the word. And we say, we do believe the word. And we could believe the word right now. But what, what, what potentially will happen a few minutes from right now? What happens? Life happens. Life happens. A phone call happens. A visit to a loved one happens. A visit to the hospital happens. Life happens. And then what happens to, I will live upon every word that proceeds from the mouth of my God. Oh God. Oh God. Beloved, I mentioned that um, the cross is not merely uh, Christianity 101. Believing the Bible and being a Protestant, Sola Scriptura, is not 101. It's daily. Daily. Oh God, I believe. Oh God, help my belief in your word. Oh God, may I live according to your word. Oh God, please, make your word, your voice, overwhelm and countermand all of the other voices I hear to the contrary. You see what I mean? So the first thing that we learn is that the word of God is true. We're trying to feed our faith. If God promises that Christ will come and save his people, then that means that when Christ says, I'm going to come back and gather my people, he will. Down to the very words of Christ on the cross. I'm preaching to myself. I'm, I, you and I are fellow sufferers. Uh, I will mention this. Um, AA, 12-step groups, something in my past, which was formative for me. One of the reasons that 12-step groups, and I'm not arguing they're Christian, But one of the reasons that they work or can tend to work is it's a group of common sufferers. Now, if if you're not an addict yourself and you have no family members or addicts or you just lack empathy, then you won't understand it. But if you have empathy and, and usually gain it by experience, either you or someone you love, then it won't seem silly that it's a group of common sufferers. Beloved, we are common sufferers. We're common laborers, common overcomers, but we're common sufferers. We need to be told repeatedly, the word of God is true. Every promise will come true. 
Believe in the word of God. First thing that we learn. The second thing that we learn concerning the cry of dereliction is um, I want to look at the particular location that Christ is in geographically. I know this may sound, I don't know, trite. It's not trite. I don't think there is a fulfillment. There are a number of fulfillments of scripture by the very location that Christ makes this cry of um, dereliction. Uh, Christ dies um, inside the city of Jerusalem or outside the city of Jerusalem? Inside or outside? Outside. Outside the city. Christ is crying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Outside of Jerusalem. That's in fulfillment of scripture. It's both in fulfillment of express scripture and then it shows us various Things that come to pass from Old Testament to New Testament. Christ is being treated as a leper in our in our place. Leviticus chapter 13. Christ, who is the holy, pure one, is being treated as an unclean leper who is not fit for communion or, or friendship with God or man. He's being cast outside of the camp as an unclean thing. It just, even when I think of this, that Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, who never thought of sin, would be treated as an unclean thing, a leper, the scapegoat. Our sins are imputed to him, and he is sent away outside of the city of peace. I, I almost can't even... For us that live in sin, it's really... It's bad, but it's not that bad. If someone were to say, John, God should damn you, I I would own that. He should damn me a thousand times over. But why should he damn the, the Holy One? Us, I understand. God's saying, I'm going to treat you, Shortman, like a leper. Of course you should. But Christ? And the Bible says this in Hebrews. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat for the bodies of those animals whose blood was brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his blood, suffered outside of the gates. So even the location of the cry of abandonment is the fulfillment of scripture and it shows us what's going on. Christ is being treated as an unclean thing, as an atoning sacrifice. We we all have well-meaning family and friends and think, well, this is just Jesus showing us to be sacrificial and kind and gracious. It's none of that. He's an atoning sacrifice. The clean one is being treated as an unclean thing. And he's being carried away like a scapegoat, like a leper. And the other thing about the location of Jesus, he makes this cry of dereliction when he's on the cross. And the place of the cross, we, we call, uh, transliteration from uh, Latin, uh, what is it, calvus? Is it calvus? Is, is skull in Latin? And we say Calvary. What's Calvary? Calvary's hill. So the cry of dereliction is made outside of the camp, but it's made on a hill. Is made on a cross on a hill. And we call that hill Calvary in Latin, or we, we ca- call it in Aramaic Golgotha, 
place of the skull. All four gospel writers record Christ dies on this hill of Calvary. And why is that significant that this cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That it happens on a hill and it happens on a cross. Jesus says in John chapter 12, if I am what, I will draw all men to myself. Lift it up. Lift it up. Again, this is fulfillment of prophecy, fulfillment of prophecy. It's one after another. You just heap up. Everything is coming true. The book of Deuteronomy is referencing Jesus, the person who was hung on a tree or hanged on a tree. I think it's hanged on a tree. Is a what? He's considered a curse. This is why the writer comes along in Galatians chapter 3 and says, that's Christ. He's, he's high. He's lifted up. He's on this cross. And it's that curse language. And it's, it's when we think of this, when we think of Christ, the holy spotless one, being accursed, accursed by God his Father, why have you forsaken me? What other times, what are the two occasions that we hear the voice of the Father in reference to the Son? Two occasions. What's the, what is being said by the Father concerning the Son? What is it? Matthew chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 17. The baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Mount of Transfiguration. The Father speaks. And what does he say? This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. We have gone from that. The owning of the Son by the Father. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of the Father's love. The Father is the Father of Christ's love. But now what happens with the cry of dereliction? The Father is not acting as a Father anymore to the Son of His love. He's acting as a what? As a judge. And he's not treating his son as the son of his love. He's acting as a judge, treating his son as a what? A guilty criminal. It's horrible. It's so painful. Beloved, I want you to think of this. Particularly you fathers, particularly you fathers who have sons. God forbid, but imagine you had a son that committed a crime and it was a capital offense and you lived in a country where you were required to carry out if they were found guilty, the capital punishment. And not only were you your son's dad, but you were the judge. And you have to do your duty. And you find your son guilty. I don't think I could do it. I don't think I could do it. I don't know what the word is used when you say, I can't do this. Remand or excuse you. I don't think I could do it. But the father did it. The father looked at his son, now acting in a judicial way, and treated him as a criminal for us. And so Christ, as the son, essentially cries Father of my love, why have you abandoned me, the son of your love? 
Why? What's going on? He's bearing the justice, the wrath, the righteous anger of God for us. That's what's going on. Beloved, you know, um, I don't want to go too long. I went too long last week. Um, A lot of people don't believe the gospel. I didn't believe the gospel for 26 years. I didn't believe. I did not believe the gospel. There are people that you love that don't believe the gospel. I, 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 I believe a lot of times the reason that people don't believe the good news is because they don't believe the bad news. The people don't believe the goodness of the gospel because they don't believe the badness or the danger of the law. They just don't believe They don't believe God. They don't believe God is as holy as he is. They don't believe God is as just and as righteous as he is. Um, They make a God of their own imagination. They don't believe that God hates sin as much as he hates sin. They they just don't believe. And so when we come along and say, Christ died for your sins and you should believe in Jesus, they don't fall on their face swooning, thinking, this is the greatest news I've ever heard in my life. Because they don't believe the reality of the, the, the law. They just don't believe. Um, beloved, the father turned his face away, his face of love away, and turned his judicial wrath upon the son of his love for our sins. Um, As I prayed, the Father forsook the Son, even for a time. Who who, who could say how intensely painful this was so that we would never be forsaken? Beloved, we can never have too high a view of, of, of Christ, but we can never have too high of a view of our own sin. I'm not for beating yourself up for your past sins. But sometimes when I'm reminded of the depths of my sin and the depths and the height of Christ's mercy for my sin, I do start crying. I get involved in lots of situations in the church and out of the church as a minister in my capacity as a servant of Christ. And every once in a while I'm asked, well, what do you think about such and so? Such and so person, what should happened to this very bad person. And of course, someone tells me about the bad sins that the person has committed. And I often am reminded that um, I've been worse. I've been worse. And Christ cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me for me? And then what that does for me is it makes me a little bit more merciful for other folks. Oh, we can never plumb the depths of this. Um, May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.